What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Sharon Van Etten is about as honest and transparent as a singer-songwriter can get. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Sharon Van Etten plays her latest batch of songs from the heart live in our studio. And we'll review the new album by dance pop artist Santi Gold. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. the Ramones singing It's Not My Place in the 9 to 5 world, and that is as good a way as any to describe the unconventional life that a lot of musicians have made for themselves forever, really, but in the last decade especially, a lot of turmoil in how artists actually make a living. We're talking about record company consolidation. There are fewer major labels than ever. There's been a huge transition from the compact disc to downloading, now to streaming as a way for recorded music to be sold. We are seeing commercial radio playlists narrowing evermore. So there are all these new opportunities out there, all these new obstacles out there. How do musicians actually make a living out of all these potential revenue streams? Well, Greg, the nonprofit advocacy group, the Future of Music Coalition, has been trying to answer this through its Artist Revenue Streams Research Project. We have co-director Kristen Thompson with us now. Kristen, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks so much. Kristen, in the most recent part of this project, you put together five different case studies to show how different types of musicians earn their living. There's the jazz band leader composer, the indie rock composer performer, the jazz sideman band leader, the professional orchestra player, and the contemporary chamber ensemble member. Tell us, what was your goal going in? We wanted to um, actually, because there's a lot of assumptions made about how musicians make a living, we wanted to actually look at the financial documents that musicians have. And so this meant collecting or looking at the, the actual financial, financial picture of five different musicians. So we're looking at a jazz band leader composer, an indie rock composer and performer, a jazz sideman, a professional orchestra player, and a contemporary chamber ensemble musician. What are the common themes that you find in these five areas? There's a few. So what's clear from looking at these financial pictures that even though they have very distinct and different careers, they're deriving income from multiple roles. One may dominate, and in fact, with these five case studies, live performance dominates, but especially with the indie rock composer performer and the jazz sideman, there's a lot of different income streams that are coming in simultaneously. It might be a little bit of session work. It might be some publishing advances. It might be some merchandise sales. It's clear that it's very difficult to just do one thing. You have to sort of piece together a bunch of different things And what I take away from it, just looking at it, is that musicians have a lot of responsibilities these days. You really have to have a lot of different skills, Kristen, to capitalize on four, five, six, or more different revenue streams to stay on top of it, to do your accounting, to pay your taxes. I hope they all paid their taxes, right? (laughs) 
I hope so, too. Okay. And um, there's been a big shift in also the music landscape about the support structures around musicians. Do they rely more on managers or accountants or booking agents in order to make sure that they're sort of leveraging all of their assets properly? And even with all the team members, I'm sure it's really challenging for the day-to-day artist. It's almost exhausting to sort of keep on top of everything. Right. That dream that you're going to sign to a major label and they will just hand you the pile of money every week or every month, I mean, that's long gone. Still, let's go back to what you said earlier. At the core of it, it's the same situation we had with the wandering minstrel in the Middle Ages. He or she strolled into town, and if they were good, they got a couple of coins in their hat, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, live performance still is the bulk of what musicians live on. Yes, it's the most direct way that musicians can make money, and it's the one with the fewest vagaries and middlemen, and sort of once you play, you get paid that night usually. But there's costs associated with touring. And the other difficult part about it is that it requires constant output. You know, unless you're playing shows, you're not making money. So the, for, the folks who rely on live performance have to keep touring or else their incomes would plummet. Let's get back to the, the thing about recording. I think that the Record Industry Association of America would have us believe that the poor, starving artist is no longer making a penny from selling his or her music. How do the artists you looked at fare in terms of uh, making money from distributing their music either online or as physical product? Well, we're still seeing artists who tell us that they're making money from the sale of sound recordings. And that can be the physical sales at stores or CDs sent through the mail. It can be digital sales like iTunes, and it can be the licensing of their sound recordings for on-demand streaming services. The amount of money is, is a smaller percentage than, say, the live performance money, but it's still there. What we found in our financial case studies and also in uh, some interviews we did with folks, artists selling their own recorded music at shows is sometimes a really important part of the equation, not only because it helps them connect with fans, but it's also a really direct way for them to make sure that their sound recordings are actually getting in the hands of folks who really appreciate them. One of the interesting benefits of the the landscape changes in the past 10 years is that it's so much easier for artists to sell sound recordings. The barriers to entry in the marketplace are so much easier to overcome now. We're talking to Kristen Thompson of the Future of Music Coalition, Kristen, I think one of the key jobs that FMC has been doing over the last decade is sort of this notion that there is a middle-class possibility for people who who make music for for a living. That in the previous music industry that we were looking at in the 20th century was a have-or-have-not situation. You were either making a ton of money, and then there was a vast majority of people who were barely making a living at all. How realistic is it? What is it about these five musicians that you studied that has enabled them to actually make a living off their music? What are the key elements here that musicians who are considering this as a career choice would have to look at? Well, the things that are the same amongst all of them that probably contribute to their ability to make a living is that they're all trained. They all have been active for more than 10 years, and they're all members of organizations. And it's interesting because the case studies are one part of this artist revenue stream project, but we have also done a big survey and done interviews as well, and we can see the effect of membership, either in a performance rights organization or in a union, because oftentimes not only do they represent specific income streams and the money flows through them, but also I think they represent such a big mass of performers and music creators that they help artists get some traction in the marketplace. So, so Kristen, education, learn your craft, mm-hmm. perseverance, stick with it, and community link up and network with the people who are doing the same thing you are. That's a wonderful summary. Well, thanks. I try. 
We've been talking with Kristen Thompson from the Future of Music Coalition about making a living as a musician today. Kristen, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Always a pleasure. We know we've got a lot of musicians out there in our listening audience. How has your lifestyle changed? How has the way you have made a living out of music changed in the last decade? Give us a call at Listening to Sound Opinions, and up next we welcome singer and songwriter Sharon Van Etten. The Brooklyn-based artist has been busy over the last few years. She's released three albums, she's played major festivals, and she's toured all over the country. Fans have taken to her deeply personal and heartfelt lyrics, and recently she upped her game when it comes to the sound of her records. On her latest album, Tramp, Sharon collaborated with Aaron Dessner of The National. The result was a move away from those more acoustic-based tunes that she played on her debut album to more lush orchestrations and a more open approach to the songwriting. So when we sat down with Sharon, I began the conversation by asking her why she decided to turn her private thoughts into songs for the public. Well, I didn't really know why I would share what I wrote with people, I always felt like it was a selfish thing to do, and the main reason why I wrote was self-therapy. But when I started sharing it more and more with my friends, they encouraged me to perform out in front of people because it helped them, and they thought that it would help other people too. So they kept encouraging me to play out, and I kept doing so more and more. You were, I guess, schoolmates in Jersey with uh, Kip Malone of TV on the radio, or knew of him at, at the same school? Is that how the story goes? Um, his brother was my friend and his sister was my sister's friend and we all kind of knew each other but I didn't know Kip until I moved back to New Jersey in my 20s but I met him at a show when he was opening up for a celebration Mm -hmm. at at Bowery like seven years ago maybe and there was a connection there in terms of you did you give him some songs or how did you because it seemed like he was kind of helpful early on to you to sort of say hey you, you need to get out there and do something yeah, well, I introduced myself at the show. I didn't know his band or anything. I just knew his name, and I like I knew the the last name was familiar. And then when I saw him, there was no mistaking that he was a sibling of theirs. And then I we started hanging out in New Jersey when I was still living with my parents. Just went on from there. Was he giving you any kind of feedback on your songwriting at that point? He said, "Give it up." <laughs> no, no, no. He he was just very encouraging, keep telling me to keep doing it. How was that transition going from, you know, basically writing songs in your bedroom to getting up there on stage and playing in front of people? Was that something you were a, you were a natural? Like, let's get up there and let's do it. No, not at all. <laughs> it was very, very strange, and I was really, really shy. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked down or closed my eyes almost all the time. <laughs> I'm not as shy as I used to be, but it's still a very weird thing to do in general, I think. 
Well, they say public speaking or public performance is the number one uh, phobia of most people on the face of the earth. So what are some tips you might give to people who are fighting through that and, and trying to, you know, find a way to present their material to the public? Well, I, well, I had a whiskey before I played. <laughs> That's always <laughs> Which, good. That helps. <laughs> it, it definitely helped me take things a little less seriously. But usually people are pretty responsive. They're there to be entertained and they're there to listen most of the time if you're like if you if you have a show and you have to think these these are not my enemies mm-hmm. <laughs> these are people that really want to like something Sharon, to what extent was it difficult because music's really emotional to you? I, I remember the, the quote I read in one of your interviews that really crystallized it for me is that when you were in choir back in the early days, every time you sang Ave Maria, you would cry. It gets really intense, you know? There's there's like a few things that always give me goosebumps, like when you're in a huge audience and everyone's clapping, or when there's an a cappella choir singing and holding a tone and you can feel the resonance in the room especially when you're a part of that and you're all doing it together without anything else, like the voices are the instruments. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty incredible feeling. Do you feel that you're in that position now? Because your, your songs resonate with people and you're kind of the focus of that coming back at you from the audience. It's I've been pretty overwhelmed with everything right now between having a really great band and being able to sing with people live for the first time in a really long time been a pretty crazy time i think well you do have a great band we've got doug keith on bass guitar and a really cool looking harmonium (laughs) is it true that nico used to own that one (laughs) maybe (laughs) why don't we get a song from you guys all right
That's Give Out, performed by Sharon Van Etten live in our studios. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we'll have more with Sharon and her band. And later, Greg and I will review the new album by musician and producer Santi Gold. back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and today we are featuring singer and songwriter Sharon Van Etten. She and her band joined us to perform songs from her third album, Tramp. Greg, there's a couple of meanings to that title, including the fact that she was moving all over the country when she was recording the disc. On this release, she continues in the tradition of exposing personal songs, but Sharon has expanded her approach to the production. No longer is it just this woman and her guitar. During our conversation, I asked her what it was like to have a full band with her in the studio and then to take that group on the road. I'm taking baby steps because I feel like I'm still learning how to have a band and learning how to write parts with everybody. But there's this side of me that really wants to rock out, so I'm, like, learning how to do it all still. Mm. But I don't want people to think I'm this really sad, depressing person all the time. You know, that first record, I was so broken. And the the record before this one, Epic, was when I just started playing as a band. So now I feel like that I have a little more freedom because I'm a bit more comfortable with sharing ideas and not so protective or scared of opening up like that. And yet your voice is still very much the center of everything. I had read a review, uh, Pitchfork, where they compared you to a cross between Mama Cass Elliot and <laughs> Cat Power. And I said, wow, that is crocked, right? <laughs> and then you were warming up before singing 
Mama Cass Elliot. I love her. I it was one of the first tapes my parents ever gave me was like a double cassette of the best of the Mamas and the Papas, and I, I was super in. I was super into them. All harmony based oldies like Everly Brothers, Mamas and the Papas, Del Shannon. Well, you're using this music as you said, sort of self therapy. Was it before you started making it? What were the albums that gave you that sort of feeling of they're making me feel better, helping return to good mental health <laughs> just by listening to them? Well, I had I had a bunch of records that from when I was a teenager, you mean? How far yeah. back do you want me to go? Yeah, I mean, what was your first memory of like music? Hey, this is a transformative experience listening to this. Well, when I was an angsty teenager, it was Ani DeFranco and Liz Fair, and even before then, like Neil Young. This is what I was raised on, and then my brother got me into grunge music and more of the '90s style, Dinosaur Jr. and Nirvana. You know, and I just didn't understand why I hated the world, you know? (laughs) But I got into much more mellow music, like Tom LaMaccio, who's a really beautiful guitar player from Maryland, and Lowe, who turned into a major influence. He was still one of my favorite bands, and PJ Harvey and Mm -hmm. John Kill, Patti Smith later on. Are you honing in on the lyrics or melody, or what, what is it that grabs you about the confidence of the singing and performing and the phrasing. The lyrics are really amazing, but I'm I'm still learning how to write lyrically. For me, it's more melody and, and intensity and arrangements, and then the lyrics usually come later. Mm-hmm. We are here with uh, Sharon Van Etten, along with Doug Keith, uh, Heather Woods Broderick, and Zeke Hutchins at Sound Opinions. How about another song? Sure.
Sound Opinions, Leonard from Tramp, album number three. Gorgeous stuff, Sharon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, so these words, self-therapy, we've tossed them around a few times. It's obligatory in every uh, piece written about you to mention these. <laughs> so now at this point in your career, people are analyzing what you're singing about, you know, and, and it's all about you, right? It has to be about you. You've said self-therapy. You ever written something that's like, no, I don't want to share that? Oh, Yeah. Oh, really? Have... Okay, can you play that next? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I have, you know, I, I start writing only for me, you know, mm. and it's only when I feel like it's it will help other people that I want to share it, where it's a universal kind of message and or lesson or story even. I'm only just, just learning how to tell a story as opposed to my own emotional damage but i have a lot of songs that are just for me to get through and i think it's selfish to share songs that people can't relate to because that's why i play music you know i share music that i perform songs that hopefully will help people and then i keep hidden away the ones that are only for me to deal with how do you recognize that though how do you know what's universal how do you know when you've written a keeper when i feel like there's just one line that like becomes kind of a mantra for me. And then I only I start by just playing it for friends before I really share it with other people and just get their opinion on it. If people don't connect with songs, then I don't I don't pursue them. And usually I don't even know exactly what it is at first when I start writing something and and why why I I connect with it even beyond trying to improve myself or to get better. But there's something about it that I, I keep wanting to analyze and re-edit and rewrite and develop the melody and things like that. And when I share it with other people and they connect to it right away, then it, I feel a responsibility to build upon that and see what happens. So does a song like Leonard start out as you talking to Leonard, this guy, or you know, real or imagined, uh, just a one-on-one conversation just meant for the two of you and somehow something happens in the songwriting process where it becomes more than that, more of the uh, universal thing, as you said? If, for that particular song, it's funny. Like Leonard is Leonard Cohen, who I was listening to a lot of at the time when I wrote that song. And it started off by me 
describing a situation that just happened, but then during the stream of conscious writing that took place, I ended up mixing up both characters, where I was turning into all of this generalized, but I was turning myself into the man, and then the man was turning into the to me. But then there's just like this weird role reversal, even though I was supposed to be myself and the person was supposed to be the other person, but we ended up becoming the same person by the end of the song. Wow, that's uh, pretty heavy. <laughs> Even heavier to be able to make that a universal experience. Yeah. Don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> no, you said something happened. Was there like a, did you see a concert or listen to a song? What was it that sort of triggered that process? Well, it was in the middle of when I was, when I was couch surfing and subletting and I was so focused on music and I was, I had just, started seeing somebody but I was so focused on music and so exhausted from touring and recording that I couldn't give this person as much as I really wanted to and we were really early on in the relationship but I respected him very much so I had to end things as I was looking at what was happening I realized I had become someone that I had seen before him and how he treated me in that relationship and and so I reflected upon that when looking at how I just treated this guy. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, like it's very different from my old records because it was mostly about one person. And this new record is about how I've moved on since then and what I've learned from my past experiences and how I'm acknowledging my own mistakes and my own faults because of what I've been through. Yeah, it's remarkable the way you can trace your growth. It, it's almost like if if somebody was a hardcore Sharon Manhattan fan, they could see this person growing as well as this musician. Was it difficult to share? Because you said this is a big part of this record, col- collaboration, working with Aaron Dessner, working with uh, musicians from Beirut and Y Oak and the Walkman, letting them have a piece of your songs. Was it difficult taking these very personal songs and sort of having other people you know, have their way with them? I thought it was great because mm-hmm. I felt like all of a sudden it was becoming our song and it made it even more universal and everybody related to the songs and it helped me step outside of myself and see that these songs could become something beyond my own personal narrative. Like when you have other musicians, you just don't feel so alone. And I feel like that's that's what I love about music in general is that it helps you feel not so alone. So did these collaborators take, you know, Maybe give us a specific song where something happened in the process of collaboration where that song ended up in a totally different place than you might have expected if it just left to your own devices. Well, the song All I Can on the record started off with, it was only an acoustic guitar and a vocal. I was sitting in a, when I wrote that song, I was in a hotel in Tokyo at five in the morning and I couldn't sleep and I was really delirious, but I had to be really quiet and I had a melody idea. And I was sitting in a desk looking outside of the window, just in, you know, total shock about where I was. I was traveling by myself in Tokyo at 5 in the morning on tour. <laughs> you had your lost in translation moment. <laughs> totally. I'm like, what am I doing here? And, you know, like, you're delirious, so, like, you're overly emotional about everything. And I'm like, how did I get to Japan? <laughs> and why am I still awake? And I started playing guitar, but I wanted to be really quiet, so it's like this really subdued like really quiet vocal really quiet guitar demo that I could just remember I brought it into Aaron and he said okay well let's 
record guitar and then we'll record a vocal and we'll record a harmony. And then he's like, what do you imagine there? And I said, drums. He's like, where? I said, I have no idea. And he brought Brian Devendorf in, his drummer. And on like the first or second take, Brian just waited to come in until this one part. And all of a sudden it turns into this total anthem like this rock kind of song and I never thought that it could be that way and it's just like this song that keeps building up being a big theme on the record is just almost every single song is just a build and I really like that because it's kind of weird <laughs> that's cool I love the part of that story where she didn't want to disturb anybody in the hotel <laughs> I've never been next to somebody in a hotel that cared at all about that <laughs> well I I want you guys to play the next song because I think that after that story this is going to illustrate now this is the mean nasty this is this is where you're starting to rock out right yeah this I mean is when serpents I, got, I let myself get mad and so sad yeah I think we need some some of that I think we need some serpents right because this is this is a nasty song it's the first single you're trying to make a statement with this tune yes 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 I'm trying <laughs> I think it succeeds thank you
That's Serpents from Sharon Van Etten on Sound Opinions. Great band, great song. Doug Keith, Heather Woods Broderick, Seek Hutchins helping Sharon out on that song. Sharon Van Etten has been our guest on Sound Opinions with her band. Sharon, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having us. Don't forget to check out our video of Sharon Van Etten performing live at soundopinions.org. And we also invite you to share your sound opinions on the air. Call 888-859-1800. Greg and I will be back after a quick break with a review of the latest from Santi Gold and Greg's Desert Island Jukebox selection. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Sound Opinions, that is a song called Disparate Youth from the new album by Santi Gold, Master of My Make-Believe. Greg, you were a huge fan of Santi Gold's debut album in 2008 called Santo Gold. Born and raised in Philadelphia, attended Wesleyan University where she studied music and African-American studies, became a singer in a ska punk band called Stift where she met John Hill, who is her partner in Santi Gold. That 2008 debut album was up there neck and neck along with M.I.A. as an exciting combination of dance pop, electronic underground sounds with world rhythms, everything, and the kitchen sink. In the case of Santi Gold, a lot of Caribbean flair to it. And then she's kind of disappeared 
There have been these pop-up cameos with the Beastie Boys on Hot Sauce Committee, with TV on the radios, David Sytek, but people have been waiting for the new Santi Gold album. Now we have it. It's called Master of My Make-Believe. It was originally supposed to come out on Jay-Z's Rockefeller Records. We don't know what happened with that relationship. It's coming out on Atlantic, crafted with some of the best names in underground production today, Diplo and Switch, although Hill and Santi Gold themselves are very talented producers. We're going to play a song from it and then come back and give our opinions and rate it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. This is called The Keeper by Santi Gold from the new Master of My Make-Believe on Sound Opinions. That is Santi Gold with the song The Keepers from her new album, Master of My Make-Believe. Jim, you're absolutely right. I love that 2008 record when she was known as Santo Gold, and I thought it was a great mix of reggae and new wave. I think Master of My Make-Believe expands the palette considerably, though, and I think it's a much more accomplished record. Uh, not only is she getting into those new wave and reggae rhythms, but she's also expanding it. There's much more of an African vibe here in terms of the percussion and in the vocal harmonies. She's also expanded her palette of collaborators, the, the producers. You mentioned Hill and Switch and Diplo. They worked with her on the first record. Now she's working with David Sytek of TV on the radio. She's working with members of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. She's working with Q-Tip from A Tribe Called Quest. She's making a survey here of cutting-edge styles, and I think she does that wonderfully because she's a great songwriter. If there is a complaint leveled at Santi White, it is that she's not a terrific singer. She's not particularly distinctive. But in a field of over-the-top singers, you know, the Lady Gagas of the world, people like that, I think she stands out because of her songwriting. She's developing all these different styles. She puts a little pop twist, a melodic hook in just about every song she writes here. 
she's definitely got a handle on what's cool about cutting-edge music, but also putting a song at the heart of every one of these new rhythms that she's experimenting with. And secondly, there's some darker shades to this music that I think you don't often hear in a lot of pop albums these days. And I love the moodier songs on this record, especially like the one we just played, The Keepers, The Riot's Gone, This Isn't Our Parade. I think this is a step up from the wonderful debut. It's a buy it album all the way for me. I agree, Greg. It's absolutely a buy it record. I think you threw the listeners a bit of a left turn there by playing The Keepers because it is one of the quieter songs when this, to me, is an album of anthems. The exuberance of this record is what carries it for me. Her energy, her spirit, it is irrepressible. And I think it is so wonderful to hear that in pop music at this time. There is a celebration of strength and self-respect. At the same time, there's a lot of humor. So Buy It, Burn It, Trash It, two very enthusiastic Buy It's. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to travel to a deserted island and pop a quarter in the jukebox, play something we can't live without. Greg, what are you going to take this week? Jim, I was thinking back to some of the records that I really love from the 90s and about artists who got completely overlooked. I was thinking if these artists had come out today... The power of the internet, the the way music is able to travel virally, would have turned them into stars or at least given them a really viable way to make a living. But I think, you know, the fact that it was the 90s, we didn't have this way of communicating, and they were just buried underground for so long that nobody really discovered how great they were. And I'm referring specifically to an artist named Lita Husick out of the East Coast, a singer-songwriter who I think was every bit as good as any singer-songwriter of that era but never got her due. She put out seven albums in the 90s that were all pretty much overlooked, but I think she was fantastic. I think she presaged everything that artists like Liz Fair and Beth Orton did later in the decade and got much more acclaim for. She had this dusky quality to her voice and these mystical lyrics that were trippy and psychedelic, but also had sort of this religious quality about them that was really haunting. Then there was a the guitar playing. She played most of the instruments on her records. It was sort of a hypnotic, dreamlike guitar style, somewhere between surf and shoegaze. The record that I love the most was her fourth album. It came out in 1995 called Joyride. And the track I'm going to play from Lita Husick is called Mother Richard. It's on Sound Opinions.
That was Mother Richard by Lita Husek, Greg Cott's Desert Island Jukebox Selection. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark Bourbon, it is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to celebrate Mother's Day with some great songs about mom. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Thanks to Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill for helping with the Sharon Van Etten recording. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's still crying over those Sharon Van Etten songs. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, my name is Deborah Samat from Austin, Texas, and I'm calling in regard to the doctor show with a recommendation for the couple who didn't really like Heartless Bastards. Maybe they would like the Alabama Shakes. Maybe Susan would like the gutsiness of Britney. Going way the other way, maybe, just maybe, they would both like the song Hard Times on Gillian Welch's and Dave Rawlings' new CD, Heroin the Harvest. If that doesn't pull some passion and some heartstrings out of those people, I don't know what will. Thanks. Bye. Singing Jim and Greg, this is Kevin from New Jersey. I'm calling to comment on some recent record reviews that you've done where you recited lyrics. Uh, you did a little bit with the Madonna one. I know you did the Springsteen one. You, I remember you did Coldplay like that. It is a fun game to just sort of quote random lines from Milo Xylodo, though, Jim. you got to admit, just us against the world, from underneath the rubble, sing a rebel song. Took a I, car downtown where the Lost Boys meet. I mean, come and on. I would tell you that I, I agree that most rock lyrics are crap. But especially if you read the lyrics out in sort of a snarky, derogatist voice, all of them are going to sound stupid. I mean, all along the watchtower, princes kept the view, while all the women came and went, barefoot servants too? It seems to me we're getting into uh, sort of Peter Sellers reciting Hard Day's Night territory, if we're not careful here. Keep up the great work, guys. Thanks. Bye. It has been a hard day's night, and I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. Good morning. This is Jan in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm calling about the uh, second act show. If uh, the Elvis comeback special uh, in 1968 on television was a seminal moment, I think Roy Orbison, who you mentioned, The Black and White Knight, which PBS originally did, is something that any fan should check out. 
People like T-Bone Burnett, Bruce Springsteen, Linda Ronstadt, Bonnie Raitt, all doing backup. And you can see how much they loved him and loved his songs. So thanks a lot. Keep up the good work. Rock on. So far apart, but only the lonely. Hey, this is David calling from Los Angeles, California. Jim, I completely disagree with you on Paul Weller. Style Council are excellent, and the jam are rock and roll. Listen to the song All Mod Cons and tell me that's not a rock and roll song. Okay, bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.